Out Alive is made possible by Outside Plus subscribers. iOS users can now explore content from more than 30 publications in the Outside Plus app. Browse gear reviews, training plans, travel guides, videos, and the survival stories you love. Download the Outside Plus app now from the App Store and use your Outside Plus login to get started. Outside Plus, the one subscription to fuel all your adventures. Four years ago, I was the photo editor at Backpacker on a group pack rafting trip in Wrangell St. Elias National Park in Alaska. Each night, we'd make camp nested on the riverbank, surrounded by glaciers and fjords, drinking whiskey with actual glacier ice, and carrying our bear spray diligently. We'd seen six grizzlies on the very first day of the trip, and their tracks would continue to appear outside our camp each morning. I was in the wild, maybe for the first time really, and our guides, having decades of experience shepherding others down those untamed rivers and mountains, would regale us with stories as we set up our camp and made dinner. Listening to them and seeing the riveted faces of my campmates made me wonder how I could replicate that experience. It gave me the idea for a podcast, this podcast, where we would get to hear survival stories from the people who really live them. I knew nothing about podcasting or audio. I just sensed that there were so many stories that could bring us all together around the proverbial campfire. Fast forward four years and Out Alive has published 49 survival stories for millions of listeners. We've listened together with reverence to survivors share their hardest moments, from aggressive grizzly bears, canyon falls, planes that crashed, and the people who lost their way. A few stories from those early years still echo in my brain sometimes. And on this 50th episode of the show, it seemed appropriate to pay tribute to one of the most harrowing, heartbreaking, and hopeful tales we've ever produced. This episode originally aired as a two-parter, but we've combined them here together to make listening easier. Also a warning that this episode does contain adult content and may not be suitable for younger listeners. Our story starts on Mount Rainier, the tallest mountain in Washington state. It's the most heavily glaciated peak in the lower 48, with 26 glaciers that make up year-round snowfields and technical terrain that's riddled with yawning crevasses. It takes skill and endurance to reach the summit, but that's still only halfway. The descent can be just as perilous, and often, that's when things can go horribly wrong. I made a decision to survive. You're in that survival mode. The, the idea of dying wasn't in my head. I knew immediately it was the worst case scenario. I was in a fight for my life situation. Whenever you walk out on these trails, you're in their house. I'm Louisa Albanese, and you're listening to Out Alive by Backpacker. In each episode of this podcast, we'll bring you real stories of real people who survived the unsurvivable. I saw the rope zip through the rappel ring, and I couldn't do anything. Learn what went wrong, what went right, and how you can escape if the worst case scenario happens to you. There is no way we would find anybody alive. 
So my name is Stacy Lytle. I grew up in Texas and Growing up in Texas, I didn't have access to a lot of the outdoors, but in college, I was exposed to climbing, which kind of became, it turned into this love of mountaineering. I think it went from being like, oh, I like doing things outside to how can I set goals and how can I like basically go after really hard things. Um, and for me, that looked like climbing really big mountains. We started making plans to climb Mount Rainier probably six months before we had like the date set. I don't remember what date it was. It was like mid-June. Um, and we we went up Baker first and we're in like a horrible weather window. It was like complete whiteout. You couldn't even like see the crevasses and the wind was crazy. So the following morning when we were planning to do our summit push on Baker, we decided that that was not a safe decision. And we um, we went down but we knew that we had a really great weather window for Rainier. So we were not on the standard route. We were sort of on like the other side of the mountain. It's called the Emmons route or the Emmons Glacier. It's a similar level of technicality, but less crowded. And there's on the standard route, there's like flags to us like to show where the route is. And on the route we were on, there's like no flags. So it's a lot of, it's really on you. I remember sitting in camp the day before our summit push and like you can see the summit and just trying to visualize standing on top of the mountain, like basically visualizing the goal, right? Everything was going really well. It was like completely clear. Our team was meshing really well. At this point, um, due to illness and you know, just some different stuff going on, there were four of us who were going to make the summit push. The climb up was honestly like really glorious. I think we all knew like we had trained hard for this. We were prepared for this. We were all working really well together and we were doing great on time. And we reached the summit. Um, it was beautiful up top. You know, we had like celebratory Snickers bars and took all of our photos and we're really just focused on like getting back to camp and having some hot soup and like, kind of celebrating our win. But what we didn't know was like at this time, there was a front that was supposed to blow in later that night or the following day, but it ended up coming in maybe like 12 hours early. So as we were on the summit and as we were starting to make our way down, um, the temperature just plummeted. And what the snow going up had been like really nice and like um, soft, but not too soft, like just really nice snow for walking and hiking basically but on the way down all of that all of that like nice soft snow had frozen hard uh, it had just rained recently uh, high elevations this is Peter Ramos he also happened to be summiting Mount Rainier that day you could you could basically say it rained on the summit of of Rainier, which is why uh, the slope was so uh, firm and icy. Guide services earlier that morning actually turned around because conditions were uh, too unsafe for the guides to feel like they could protect their clients in the case of a fall. Going up, we had crossed the Bergstrand, which is like a really big crevasse, kind of one of the defining features of the glacier. And there was this like really narrow 
snow bridge that we had crossed. And because the snow was a little bit warm, we knew that that had collapsed. So we knew we had to find like basically a different way to cross the Berkshire. But we were like, no big deal. Snow's in great condition. This is, we'll be fine. But because everything froze so quickly, we suddenly found ourselves on this much steeper part of the glacier that was around like a 50 degree steepness. I don't know if you've ever like stood on a 50 degree slope of ice, but it's like a little bit disconcerting. And below us was basically just like 3,000 feet of just run out. Climbing with Stacy that day were four of her fellow Texans, and Ross Van Dyke was one of those partners. So we had just summited. Uh, we were about 1,000 feet below the summit. We were doing a traverse, and they don't let you flag on the Emmons Glacier. And so we were trying to navigate around a Berkshund, and um, I was leading the group. And as we were going along, it looked as if there was, I don't know, 100 yards left, and then we would have been safe. So we had pickets that we were placing every X number of feet in order, and that we were basically running our, our rope through so that if someone fell, it would catch our fall. Basically making sure that like we would be safe there because we knew that this was kind of a, a cruxy part of the climb. And the, so the person in front was done with the traverse. He was on like a much safer part of the glacier and the others were coming up to that like safer part. And I was in the back, so they felt comfortable with where they were and at the same time like we had essentially run out of pickets so they were all in the front and they weren't in the back and we as a group made the decision to not place another picket we were just like we'll pull our gear like we'll be really careful we're fine in reality like i felt really scared because i wasn't on like this the safe part of the glacier right like it was still pretty steep but you never want to be like the weakest link, especially when you're the youngest one, especially like being female. Um, you never want to be the one who says like, I'm scared or like, I feel slow or like, I don't feel capable of this. But I didn't say anything. I just said, yep, that sounds good. Let's pull the picket. The fifth member of our team who hadn't been with us on summit day, was down at base camp and she was actually watching us through binoculars as we were descending. Here's Claire McDonald. Um, I got hurt a, a couple months before the trip and I wasn't able to train like I wanted to. Um, so I woke up that morning and was hopeful, but uh, you know, I also didn't sleep very well that night. My stomach was real upset. So I hiked down to the little uh, ranger station there and uh, they had some super high powered binoculars they were letting me play with. So I was watching everybody up on the mountain that day, and I was uh, I was looking right at them when they fell. So we pulled the last piece of gear. I took two steps, and on the second step, I was putting my right crampon down, and then it just didn't bite. It basically just slipped. And, you know, I had an ice axe. I'm trying to self-arrest, but the the snow is like incredibly hard, incredibly icy. And within like two seconds, I realized there's no stopping my fall. I remember jumping out in a self-arrest pose. I mean, I barely got my axe in before we were ripped from the slope. Like I felt like I was like pulled off of the of the mountain and 
When we fell, I thought immediately about my wife and I said, hey, this is it, this is how I'm gonna die. The Bergstrand that we were trying to cross this whole time was actually just below us. We couldn't see it, but when I fell, I remember the feeling of being airborne and knowing like, this is the end, like this is how I die. And then I hit the other side of the crevasse, like my head snapped back and everything went black. I think I knew right away exactly what was happening and how bad it was because they uh, fell very quickly. Um, when they stopped falling, that was uh, surprising. I, I didn't understand how they stopped falling. Twenty minutes later, I woke up. I am laying on my back in the snow. I kind of opened my eyes and slowly kind of tried to take in what was around me. And it took a while for like all of my senses to come back, but I realized I was in fact not dead. And something was holding my harness. So I, I kind of noticed that there was like another person next to me and we were like tangled up in the rope and he was completely unconscious. One of my other partners was maybe 60 feet below me, also still like on the rope, but I couldn't figure out where my third partner was. But I noticed as I looked around that there were two ends of the rope that were going uphill. So I just started climbing, like I, I didn't have an ice axe anymore. I remember, I distinctly remember like just climbing and trying to follow the rope up and like digging my fingernails like into the ice, just being like, I cannot fall. Like you just, you have to get up there. I eventually, I get to the edge of this like really narrow crevasse and I find my third partner dangling inside of it. She had slipped into this crevasse that all of the rest of us had just flown over. And her body inside the crevasse is what caught our fall and saved all of our lives. She's kind of like yelling, but I can't like really understand anything she's saying. And she's dangling sideways and she's kind of starting to thrash around so that her harness is slipping further and further down her leg. And I'm thinking like, she might just fall in. And this crevasse has no bottom. So like, if she, if she fell out of her harness, she would just be gone. And she's also what's keeping all of the rest of us alive. Like my two other partners are barely responsive and not doing well. And I'm like, how are we gonna get out of this? Here's Peter Ramos again. Remember, he just happened to be climbing nearby. So I had just summited Liberty Ridge on Mount Rainier with a friend of mine, and we were exhausted and ready for a break. But I looked over towards the Emmons Glacier, and I saw some bodies kind of laying down on their back with a knee up. I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to rest, and kept looking over towards uh, this group. And once we moved towards them, we realized it was no longer a rest. I said something pretty quickly to the two rangers I was with and uh, 
gave them the binoculars and they weren't sure, but I just kept telling them, no, they fell, they fell, they fell. And so they wanted to wait for a while and see if they moved. And uh, nobody moved for a while. So that's when they started making radio calls and doing the amazing things they did that day. On the other end of those calls was David Bulger, a U.S. Army Reserve Chinook helicopter pilot. When I first got the call, I wasn't aware of how dire the situation was with the climbers or how bad the weather was becoming. So by the time I got to the unit and started doing the planning and got the weather, I realized that it was going to be a very challenging scenario. And um, of course, I was nervous. When I woke up, I didn't really understand, kind of took me a while to orient myself. I heard somebody yelling, but kind of in a movie when a bomb goes off and it's silent and you're like, and then you kind of hear a ringing and then everything kind of comes to. That's kind of how it was for me. And so I kind of woke up and I was like, man, where, where am I? And I looked around and I didn't see anybody. And so um, I then kind of hear someone yelling my name, yelling my name, yelling my name. And then um, I look up and I see Stacy yelling. I kind of yelled at him, like, you have to come up here. Like, I, I can't explain, but like, you have to come to me. So he like drags himself up this mountain and his pelvis was completely dislocated. I, I didn't know exactly at the time what had happened. I thought that I had uh, broken my femur. There was so much adrenaline going that I, at that point, I didn't feel any pain. I proceeded to use my one good leg and the crampon that was on that leg and my ice axe in the opposite hand to climb up what may have been 75, maybe 100 feet to where Stacy was. I um, passed Stuart, um, but um, I thought he was dead. So he gets to me and he is like, hey, I think we should call 911. At that point, it's like, what do you even say? But we were like, we are on the Emmons Glacier, like we've taken a fall where we think we're around 13,000 feet, like, can you help us? And the person on the other end of the line says, yes, your accident has already been reported, the Air Force has been notified, and they're on their way. So on this mission, we had the two pilots up front, the one flight engineer that was surveying outside, the crew chief working the winch, and the National Park Service personnel were part of my crew. We picked them up at the base of Mount Rainier. Uh, and then uh, Madigan Army Hospital provided two paramedics to augment our crew. So prior to us lifting off, we just, we made sure that the crew was briefed. The, uh, the other pilot and I talked about everything we had to do step by step what would happen for each contingency. So we were well prepared, but we just didn't know the conditions of the climbers. We didn't know how, how bad that situation really was. At some point, we hear these voices above us and someone is yelling down at us asking, hey, are you guys okay? It took us about 45 minutes to get to where they were, and we're kind of in shock as to what had just occurred. So these two guys come down to us, and one of the guys told me, he said, like, hey, I'm, I'm a nurse. I'm an expedition nurse. I think he said he's an expedition nurse. And like, 
can I help you? I am a professional mountain guide as well. Basically, a glorified mountain guide with nursing knowledge. Once he showed up, I think I just kind of relinquished all control. My role was just to keep everyone as calm and peaceful as possible. At first, I was like, holy beep. There were four bodies. One of them was in a crevasse. Two of them were sitting on top of a snow bridge right above the lady who was in the crevasse. And one guy was probably about 25 feet down the slope laying on his back. So I ran around on this very firm slope to check on these four people that had fallen. I asked for people to basically like raise a hand if you can hear me. And uh, three of them raised their hand, except for the person in the crevasse. They actually ended up sustaining a big head injury and they weren't following directions very well. She couldn't state her name. Uh, she couldn't state where she was. And uh, when I asked if people remember falling off the mountain, she did not. So basically at that moment, I knew that the person in the crevasse was more critical and we had to get her out. Up till this point, my partner in the crevasse had been our anchor, essentially what was holding us all, keeping us all alive, right? Like keeping us all in that part of the mountain. Um, and then he was able to set up an anchor and kind of around that point, some climbing rangers from uh, the base camp that we were staying at had climbed up to us. The physical effort that those two rangers put in getting up there, I don't know how they did what they did. Like it doesn't, the math doesn't make sense how quickly they were able to get from where I was to where our team was. It was just mind-blowing. They set an anchor. They were able to pull my partner out of the crevasse. And they were able to kind of stabilize our whole situation. I turned to the rangers once they arrived. and said, you know, this is your rescue and this is your mountain. You tell me where you need me. And they asked for me to do medical. And so I went around and started to do more thorough assessments on each person and the critical conditions that they were all in. One of the guys she was sitting next to, I think he had a broken leg and a broken arm and a broken back. And uh, the guy that I was covering at that time, he had a collapsed lung and I believe two broken legs. And the lady in the crevasse, uh, she had a dislocated hip. Uh, she had a brain bleed. And I think she also broke her back. And soon after, a Chinook helicopter uh, arrived and started to assist with putting uh, the critical victims into a sled and hoisted away to a hospital. Well, when we got up there, um, we saw the, the climbers just just lined out along the glacier. They were all, you know, in the prone position. You could tell they were injured. And the rescuers had um, kind of triaged the people on the ground and, and set the order of how they wanted us lifted out. You worst injured first. So the first hoist, uh, uh, we lowered the hoist to the personnel 
uh, and lifted up the first climber with, uh, with no issues whatsoever. Once we got the lady who's in the crevasse into the sled, the Chinook hoisted her up and the Chinook then flew away for a little bit to, to cure her as we got ready to assist the next critical person off of the slopes. Um, the winds at this point were fierce and a storm had moved in and the guy I was uh, watching, he was starting to say he was feeling warm and if someone's hypothermic and they start to say they're feeling warm, it means they're at severe stage of hypothermia and recovery needs to happen at like you're it's it's a little late. The wind was getting worse and we knew that this snow system was getting closer faster than than we initially anticipated. So we knew we were uh, coming under a, you know, a tight window, but we knew we were just going to continue this operation and get as many people off the mountain as we could. All that I really remember is like how windy it was and how like the rotor wash was just so strong that it felt like it was like burning my skin just from throwing up all of the ice. And it wasn't like the normal helicopter. It was a Chinook, which is like the two rotors. And seeing that hovering above you is crazy. I don't know if you guys have ever been around or under a Chinook, but it's, I mean, it's like a spaceship. I mean, it's just unbelievably huge. I have a good bit of experience in watching the uh, military guys fly those helicopters. I have an aviation degree, things like that. And it was just amazing watching the skill and uh, just the effort those guys put into. Helicopters don't fly real good at 14,000 feet. Everyone that day, uh, my crew, the rescue climbers, the paramedics, uh, they did a uh, phenomenal job. I mean, went above and beyond to try and, and make this this mission, this rescue happen safely. But it was a, a, a bad location, very steep. And the winds were so bad that when we got the litter on the ground the second time, uh, that was when the incident with Nick happened. There are three pilots on board that day, two up front and one additional pilot to keep an eye on the cliff face, a crew chief working the winch and a flight engineer. Additionally, David's crew picks up two paramedics from the nearby Army Hospital and two more of the National Park's rescue climbers. Climbing rangers are considered elite members of the National Park Service. They undergo extensive training in professional alpine mountaineering, aviation, technical rope rescue, avalanche forecasting, backcountry skiing, and emergency medical services. One of those climbers was Nick Hall. Uh, when the Chinook came back and was lowering the sled for this uh, next person, who I was hovering over him, uh, protecting his face from the downwash from these propellers of the helicopter. The uh, flight engineer is calling the hoist distance off the ground. He tells us he's made contact with the ground, and then he tells us rescue climber has uh, unhooked the cable. So as the sled was coming down, I saw Nick Hall reaching for the sled. And he goes, okay, cable's clear, I'm bringing in the cable. And I bent back down to cover up the victim's face. And the next thing I hear is, oh God, he fell. 
I was anchored into the hillside, and then I felt something hit me, and it pushed me down the slope a little bit, and I had to momentarily rely on my anchor to keep me from falling down this steep, icy slope. And I looked over my shoulder, and I saw what looked like a human rocketing down the slope. I quickly looked away as I realized what had just happened, and I couldn't quite watch the rest of it. It was just kind of chaos all at once. Everyone's yelling into their radios. You heard lots of things going on. And then it was just like silence. I lift up off the ground, I do a pedal turn. As I do, I see a shape just plummet over this, this cliff, you know, 20, 30 yards away from the left side of the aircraft. At the time, I didn't know what had happened, and I definitely didn't realize the gravity of it, but I, I remember kind of sensing that, like, something had, like, not gone according to plan. I remember hearing a voice come over the radio and saying, can someone go down there and check if he's still with us? I nosed the helicopter over, and I started just following him down the mountain. I get to, I think, 8,000 feet, and I turn the helicopter back around, and I start doing a zigzag pattern back up this gully looking for him. And uh, I see him at the base of this cliff. And I come up over top of him. We hover over him at about 100 feet for, for a minute or so, looking for any movement, any, any response. And we realize we need to drop someone to him. But there is no location around here to drop anyone. So I moved back down the gully by about a quarter mile, uh, maintained that hover. One of the rescue climbers jumped off the aircraft and started making their way back up to Nick's location. And uh, at that point, we were extremely low on fuel, uh, went back to our helipad, and uh, that's when the coordinator came up to us and told us that the, the uh, climber that we had dropped off had made contact with, uh, with Nick and uh, um, he was uh, passed away at the scene. Nick Hall was a veteran of the Marine Corps, a ski patroller, and an EMT before he joined the Park Service Climbing Rangers four years prior. That was a pretty surreal moment to realize that that, that truly was what just happened, that Nick Hall had fell he, he slipped and fell down 3,000 feet on Mount Rainier. Everyone was at a loss at that moment in time. It was quiet. Luckily, this ranger spoke up, uh, and he said the plan now is that uh, those who can go down, go down. For us, I mean, uh, yes, we were, we, were, we were shocked, but we had a mission to do and we weren't gonna leave those, those other people on the mountain. So uh, we went back up there and, uh, and continued the mission. There were still three injured people in the party on the mountain with two rangers 
as the rest of us walk down the slope with assistance of Park Service. Since this, this, uh, this whole operation had taken so long, now we were starting to look at sunset. And I knew it was gonna be really tight, but I thought we could do it. I didn't think they were gonna make it um, as this storm was pure whiteout. And then by the time we got down, the winds calmed for sunset, like final light of the, of the evening, the last opportunity. Uh, we heard the Chinook flying in the air again as they're gonna give it one final go during this sucker hole of calm weather to try and pluck off the remaining injured party. The next two climbers went the way that I wish the entire mission did. Just a couple minutes for each climber and no issues whatsoever. It even seemed like the wind died down there for us for just a few minutes. It was, it was perfect. Ross, who is in excruciating pain from his injuries, is finally loaded onto the sled. So they take me up into the helicopter and I just remember when they hooked me, I was like, had this feeling of euphoria of like, I'm gonna be okay. Because I was the most, it's like the least injured, um, the helicopter was gonna bring me up last. And at this point, there's this pretty substantial storm blowing in so that there's like massive winds coming off of the ridge above us. So the helicopter is like battling all of this the whole time. And when you're trying to hover over an area with very little contrast, not much to see except for sheets of white ice and snow um, in high wind conditions, it's kind of like trying to balance on the head of a pen. Um, the pilots have to take turns hovering because it is a, a, a taxing endeavor for you. And especially on that day, I can tell you that uh, up, it, up to and after that day in my career, I've never experienced hovering conditions that were that uh, difficult. They put me in a, like a shelf, think of it like bunk beds, but they're like with, a, with litters. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, don't hit the mountain, don't hit the mountain, don't hit the mountain. The, the cliff face was you know, 20 feet away from our rotor system on the right-hand side. And my pilot in the, in the left seat was hovering the helicopter. The sun was going down uh, behind the ridge line in front of us, okay? We lowered the chunkle penetrator. It's, it's kind of a seat. As soon as the penetrator touched the ground, the rescue climber hooked her in. And my pilot said, I have lost all outside visual references. I need you to take the controls. And what had happened was when the sun went down below the ridge line in front of us, all of the snow around us turned just uh, a uniform shade of gray. So I take the controls because I can still see out my window one footprint from a climber. And that is my visual reference point. And I'm, and I'm holding a hover, maintaining just on that one footprint as long as I can. And I, I held it for about 20 seconds, which was long enough for the rescue climber to get the, the climber secured into the seat. So they're about to bring me up. I'm like harnessed in, ready to go. Well, the footprint disappears with the setting sun. And they're counting down. And I remember them saying like three, two, and then just before one. The aircraft started moving left, right, back, forward. And the rescue climber on the ground sees what the helicopter's doing. He runs up and he tackles me to the ground and I feel them unclip me. And then I remember hearing them yell into the radio like, go, go, go. My flight engineer says, climbers clear of the cable. Let's Just get, get out, out of here. here. 
that point, we said, okay, that's it. There's nothing else we can do. And then the helicopter just took off. It was me and a couple of climbing rangers, and I just remember them being like, cool, so we're here for the night. We felt terrible because, I mean, we knew she was uninjured, but we wanted to get her home. She, she'd had such a, a, for lack of a better term, a, a bad time up on that mountain. We wanted to get her home and get her safe. I'm like, I'm so cold because I had been completely, I mean, I'd been out since 2 a.m. that morning and it's 10 p.m. at night. Like, I'm the coldest I've ever been in my life and had also, like, thought I was going to die earlier that day and was completely traumatized. We felt terrible, but we knew there was there was no other option. I mean, when we landed, I went up to the pilot I was flying with, and I said, hey, in my, at this point, I had uh, 10 years of flying experience. I said, my 10 years, I think that was the most scared I've ever been. And he looked at me and he goes, I've been flying for 30 years, and that was the most scared I've ever been. I, like, spent the night, like, wedged between these two incredibly kind rangers. Um, and we had all kind of had this like hope and expectation that the helicopter was just gonna come back the next morning to get us. And so we were like all kind of like expectantly hopeful. I had the, the next day off, but I talked with um, two of the pilots uh, the next day and they actually, they went up there. They climbed as high as they could. They got above the cloud layers over Mount Rainier and they tried to find a hole in the clouds that they could circle down through um, and they could not do it. And for the next, I think, 10 to, four, 10 to 12 days, it was just completely socked in up there. So we wake up the next morning and open the tent door, and it's like a complete wide out. Can't even tell which way is down. And one of them just hands me an ice axe and is like, cool, it's go time. At that point, I realized, like, okay, this is just... You know, you thought the challenge was over, but like, it keeps going. Like you have to continue to kind of like rise to this occasion. And I didn't know if I was capable, I guess. I didn't know if I was capable of like what I had to do. So we started hiking down. It's super steep, you can't see anything. And I remember for the first part of it, we're like traversing along the, the crevasse that my partner had been dangling inside of and I, just I, all of the images of the day before kept flashing in my mind, and it was just like unending. But there was one point where, because we couldn't see anything, we couldn't figure out a way to get around this one pretty big crevasse. So we just kept going like up and down and around and just couldn't figure it out. I was so completely out of energy and like just um, energy, like physical energy, emotional energy, like mental willpower that I did not think that I could physically take another step. I'm not one who really like, I don't really give up on things and I certainly don't give up on like being alive, but I was just, my tank was completely empty in every regard. And I was willing to accept that the consequence of that would be me dying there. I asked one of the guys that I was with, I was like, hey, can you just like dig me a hole and just leave me here? Like, I think I'm done. I think like that was probably the darkest moment that I have ever had and hopefully will ever have. And then I remember he got very close to me and was like, this is when you find out what you're made of. This is when you have to dig deep because this is the moment that it matters. 
And so I stood up, I kept walking, and over the course of the day, made it all the way down to the trailhead. Like there were news cameras there, which was kind of mind blowing. And they snuck me out. And I remember like running through the woods and there's this car waiting and they like pushed me inside and closed the doors. And they take me to this house further down the road. And there's a guy sitting there and he says, there's someone here who I think might want to see you. And he like opens the front door and my parents are there. You know, my mom just like drops to the ground and is sobbing and like my dad is crying and then like I'm crying and I'm just like, how did, like, how did all of this happen? And like, how did I survive? And how am I still here? And then also like, how do I move forward? Earlier that day, Ross was taken to Madigan Army Base where he learned the extent of his injuries for the first time. I remember being wheeled in um, on the gurney and I remember them telling me that um, you've suffered a dislocated hip, um, that you um, have also suffered a pulmonary embolism. So I had a blood clot in my calf and a piece of that blood clot broke off and went through my heart and splattered into my lungs. Um, and they said, hey, it's probably gonna be about a year until you can walk again. And I just remember at that moment, like I didn't care. I mean, I, I can still see it today and it, it makes me um, emotional every time I talk about it. But an army officer walked in and asked, um, are you Ross, are you Ross Van Dyke? And I said, yes, yes sir, I am. And he said, um, I regret to inform you that there was a ranger that was killed in your rescue. And, sorry, um, and I just lost it. I just, I, um, I, I couldn't believe that what had happened to us caused the death of somebody else, not to mention the fact that it wasn't even our own party. It was an innocent person who was just trying, trying to help us. You know, we kind of went into that with, you need to be totally self-sufficient. Nobody's going to come help you. This is Claire McDonald. And then when help was needed, there were experts right there, willing and capable, and their whole lives were committed to helping folks. And then for one of them to give their life in that, uh, it's just a lot to think about. This was so much deeper than just like a really traumatic day for us. Someone literally lost their life and like made the ultimate sacrifice, you know, just trying to save ours. I was pretty numb about the events of, the, of, of that mission uh, until my drive home that night. This again is David Bulger, the helicopter pilot. Around one in the morning, I, uh, on the drive home, I, I just pulled over and just started shaking. It just, it, it all kind of hit me. I don't think it fully hit me. Like I knew in my head, I knew logically what had happened, but I don't think it like hit me emotionally for a few days. And I think watching the memorial service and just seeing all of the people that were there and realizing like, this was a person who led this incredibly rich life. I don't know, like he was someone's son. He was someone's brother. Hi, thanks for coming out today. My name's Aaron Hall. I'm Nick's brother. The loss of a brother is pretty tough. He's my only brother. You know, he's the only person that, uh, I think he's the only person on this earth that could uh, know what I was thinking without talking. Just the world's just gonna be that much more of a lonely place without him for me and I'm gonna miss him a great deal.
I met with uh, Nick's family at his memorial. I, I learned a lot about him. This is a guy who dedicated his life to helping other people. And my, as always, my thoughts and prayers go out to, to Nick's family. I mean, they, they suffered a, a great loss and uh, he, was, he was a wonderful man and he'll always be missed. On behalf of the Mountain Rescue Association and all Mountain Rescue teams, thank you for allowing us to be here. This is an adaptation we call the Rescue Mountaineer's Prayer. When I am called to duty, God, wherever people fall, give me strength to save a life, whatever be the call. Help me embrace a little child before it is too late, or save an older person from the horror of some fate. Enable me to be alert and hear the weakest shout, and quickly and effectively bring my neighbor out. I want to fill my calling and to give the best in me, to bring my every neighbor back to their family. And when it happens, on some day, my earthly tasks must end. Please bless with your protecting hand my family and my friends. I've um, recovered uh, physically. I think more than anything, it would be, you know, carrying on. Um, I don't know how to put it into words, but essentially, you know, carrying the weight of, you know, the loss of somebody. Because there was a lot of friends who have said, and, and I don't disagree with them, that hey, that there was a miracle that happened that day. But sometimes I have a hard time wrapping the miracle of us living with the um, the fact that somebody died in that process and so that's that's probably something that's tough and that I still you know to a great great degree still carry with me today when I originally wrote to the Hall family I really despite this horrible horrible thing that happened I wanted them to know that there was a human on the other side of it that really cared deeply um, and my hope was that there would be a relationship that came with that. But it's definitely been um, a slow process. I mean, I think that it went from exchanging a letter here and there to um, a huge moment for me personally was when um, Carter had reached out and said, do you, um, you interested in going bear hunting? <laughs> and I was like, bear hunting? Um, yeah, sure. I could see Ross's pain in publications. This is Nick's dad, Carter Hall. When Ross came to visit Maine last September, he came to do a bear hunt, okay? So I explained to him, I said, Ross, I said, it's a little difficult getting you a successful bear hunt and you're only gonna be here two days. This is what he responded. I don't care, Carter. We came to visit you.
I initially, and my intentions were that me being there would be healing for them. But in reality, I think that it was that much, but more for me. I will say that I was nervous, maybe scared slash intimidated. I, I didn't know that um, Aaron was gonna be there. And so I was, um, had not had a lot of correspondence with Aaron. And the, um, the opportunity to be able to be with him was, was sincerely and utterly humbling and one that I will never forget riding in a pickup truck, just he and I on these back roads in, in Maine far exceeded the euphoria that I felt standing on the top of Rainier. You know, I would put it as one of my greatest life moments. You know, Ross, one way or the other, had reached out, and, and maybe the others haven't. Maybe they didn't know how they could reach out. You know, I, I don't know what this, I don't know what everybody needs to learn and feel in this whole scenario. I felt so ashamed. I just, I couldn't let go of the idea that I hadn't spoken up and I was the one who fell. Even though there were a lot of things that went into us taking that fall, my lack of gracefulness was sort of the catalyst for all of this catastrophe that happened. And I didn't know how to grapple with that feeling because that's so heavy. But after seeking out therapy, I realized that I wasn't guilty of anything. I didn't do anything wrong. I slipped and I was really ashamed that I had been imperfect. Because it's not the perfect version of myself, right? Who wants to kind of wear the imperfect version of themselves on their sleeve? We did not make all of the best decisions that day. We were not perfect people that day and it led to a lot of really horrible things happening. But that doesn't make us any, that doesn't make us and that doesn't make, I guess, me any like less worthy of love. It doesn't like make me any less strong. And like the thing that I constantly tell myself is like, you're going to be okay. And, like you will survive this. This episode is in honor and memory of Nick Hall. This episode was written and produced by me, Louisa Albanese, and Zoe Gates. Editing and sound design was by Matt Coderre. Thank you to Stacey Lytle, Ross Van Dyke, David Bolger, Claire McDonald, Peter Ramos, and Carter Hall for sharing your stories with us. A special thank you to the Mount Rainier National Park Climbing Rangers and Search and Rescue. Thanks so much for listening to Out Alive. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode. 